This is the Kick Aspirational Podcast, Season 3, Episode 5, Safety Third. <laughs> Without risk, there is no reward. So how do we offer risk, reward, and safety? This is Dave Vanderveen, and if you've been listening to the Kick Aspirational Podcast, you know it's all about helping us break through barriers in our own lives. Hopefully, you've listened to the last episode or one of the latest ones with Rob Bell. We talked a lot about uh, letting go, human progress, about living deliberately, and the importance of being in touch with yourself and the movement of the universe, maybe not gripping the steering wheel too tightly, the plans you make of your life. When I say that, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Um, so this podcast is all about how to take risks, connect our work and reward, but maybe also think about how to do do that in a way that we don't kill ourselves, how to build things with managed risk, with risk, reward, and safety. I really like this idea of safety third, you know, because obviously we need safety, but if we put that value too far forward, at least for me, life becomes unbearable and we, we can't release the tremendous potential that's somehow locked within us. We have to apply pressure, effort, and time against the parts, you know, those parts of our personalities that enhance who we're meant to be and burn it off. We literally have to burn that off. And you do that by taking risk. It's like turning, you know, it's like burning the carbon off the off the off the O-rings, man. You gotta just you gotta apply some pressure and heat in order to get to where you're going. We need to burn the carbon off our O-rings. We gotta do it though without damaging the essence of who we are, without blowing up to become our best selves. And that's why I really like this whole idea of safety third. It's sort of strange to me how providence or God or what some might call the energy in the universe or maybe serendipity, I really don't like that term, but I don't really want to argue about it either, but just how things fall in place for us. If we, if, if, you know, how these things, how, you know, God, serendipity, the energy in the universe, how it moves us if we listen, if we're open and if we allow ourselves to dance with the rhythm, rhythms that really kind of permeate our lives. So it was sort of perfect that my, you know, this friend of mine from college, Rob Bell, a guy who's floated in and out of my life in the best possible ways, had a window in his schedule that opened up when I could take a day, drive up to his house in West Hollywood, go for a surf in Malibu, cruise around LA, hang out with his daughter, Violet V, known her since she was a little toddler, her friend Zoe, make some TikTok videos and then do this podcast. The whole day, uh, which at that time was literally one week, one week into a new job where I was drinking from a fire hose and flying at light speed, making some pretty big moves I can't really discuss publicly right now. But, you know, some, some big things are happening. They're kind of a tidal shift. Um, it was just great that Rob said he could make some time. And even though the control side of my brain was saying it wasn't prudent, I had other things that I needed to do. I made the time to get together with one of my greatest anti-guru friends of all time, my brosef, Rob. <laughs> but listen to the podcast. It's, it's, I think it's one of the better ones we've done. It's a fantastic journey through the various jumps that Rob has made. It was super timely for me because it was so cathartic. Um, on my second week into one of the biggest jumps I've made in my life, when we were in the middle of kind of this heroic level of risk and reward, even... Even if I do have, you know, let's let's be honest, a fairly deep safety net right now, my lizard brain, you know, that part of my brain that just is reacting to stress and danger, was second guessing everything I knew was right, and and this decision that I really kind of knew I had to do in my soul. It was just so helpful to have Rob kind of confirm the need to leave what feels safe merely because it's familiar, to jump to the thing that the universe is screaming at us to do next. And just do it. 
Um, let me put this in a little context. So since 1994, my wife, Sarah, and I started an Amway business as distributors. It's what you know are called independent business owners or Amway business owners around the world. We went to work, didn't view it as a lottery ticket, and figured out how to make money and build a successful, sustainable business. Um, it took us a little while. It took us probably four or five years to get to a point where you know it was making decent enough money that you know it, it could take over a full-time income for one of us. I was also an entrepreneur outside of Amway. I was always looking for ways to do things, to tell a story, to create value. You know that really attracted people, and um, you know really attracted people to what I thought we all needed to do and bring people to this vision that I had to create movements. Um, I've been doing that in and out of, uh, you know, business for a long time. I was fortunate to have gone to school with smart kids who didn't buy into the story the establishment was selling. So we created better stories when I was at Wheaton College. It got me kicked out. <laughs> you know, we weren't buying into the administration's stories. We were creating stories of our own, stories that we thought made more sense to more people and created a following and movement. And, and uh, the people who were in control of the story of Wheaton College didn't like that. And so they, they asked us to leave. Um, it did get me kicked out, but it also opened up doors to places like the American Enterprise Institute. It put me back into my Dutch American roots at Calvin College, pushed me to Japan and then back to Grand Rapids to the Acton Institute. And that movement connected my life with my now wife, Sarah, you know, before I left to do work across the Western United States with the U.S. term limits movement. We passed laws in 23 states telling a story about liberty and freedom and where we all come from that, you know, 60, 70, 80% of Americans agreed with at the time. We passed laws in 23 states, term limit laws that attempted and succeeded with state and local legislatures, you know, really to change the fabric of the, of the political work and reestablish this whole idea of, of, of citizen legislators. You can listen to a lot of these stories on my earlier podcast. I won't rehash them all now, but I jumped to California from political work to technology to consumer goods, from Japan to the Midwest, the Napa Valley to Seattle to Laguna Beach. We have had a series of jumps uh, in our lives, my wife and I. And um, we had a number of early successes in work and entrepreneurship, and we went bankrupt. Uh, we had a huge colossal failure in Venezuela. I didn't understand what a coup d'etat was or that it could happen to you or that banks could get frozen or that your business partner, who you thought was a good close friend, would embezzle you and take all your money and leave you with a bill that you had to pay back in the United States of America. We, we filed for Chapter 13, and we paid our creditors back, and we rebuilt our lives. We made it work. We did the work. And I'll tell you something, that work set us free. There is no greater feeling than thinking the world's coming down and going to crater around you, and then just putting another step forward and another step forward and figuring a way out. I believe that people are made to work. Um, you know, I think uh, having a lot of early success can be tricky. It doesn't always help you learn how to manage risk. Failure, falling down, scar tissue, and healing, that is where we learn to manage risk. Healing comes from getting back up and, and basically just going back to work. Because I think you start to realize the success or the failure isn't really the thing that matters. It's doing the work that matters. The challenge is we have to connect our work, our effort, and our reward. And so, you know, we're constantly thinking about reward and we're forgetting about the other two things that are the things that probably matter the most. I mean, yes, let's do things that are successful. Yes, let's progress up and to the right. Yes, let's, you know, let's, let's collect all of the tchotchkes and, 
and, uh, you know, all the medals and trophies and dollars and coins and whatever else they give you to be successful. But man, that's not why you're doing it. And, uh, so when I failed miserably in South America, I'll tell you, it was awful. I was married with young boys. I called my dad to see if he could bail me out. And he did the best thing a father can do for an entrepreneurial son. He told me to go figure this one out. Of course, we could have packed up and lived in my parents' basement if we had to. We did have that safety net, but uh, I'll just tell you that was not a safety net I had any interest in. I mean, my parents loved us and they would have accepted us, but I just didn't want to go back to West Michigan. I also think it was kind of important for me, really fundamentally, to work through the problem. One of the things that Rob talked to me about on the podcast that he and I did is... um, you know, this play that he wrote, he actually wrote an entire play and was asking one simple question, is the ladder that you're climbing, is it up against the right building? I mean, when you get to the top of whatever you're doing right now, whatever ladder it is you're climbing in life, is it leaning up against you want what you want? Like when you get to the top of that, if you, if you reach the peak, the pinnacle, is that the place you want to be? And I think it's really, really important that we be incredibly careful about what we wish for, what we're putting all our effort into, where we're applying all our time. And, and I'll tell you something right now. You can change the building your ladder is up against. It doesn't have to be up against the one you're climbing right now. Yes, you'll have to start over. Yes, you'll have to climb some more. But maybe the whole point is climbing. And maybe the point is climbing in the right direction, not just climbing the current ladder that you have at this moment. One of my favorite concepts in terms of how we find our purpose, fulfillment, how we find real joy comes from figuring out what we're good at, what we're passionate about, and what we do that people will exchange value with us for, you know, how we can make money. Where those three things overlap isn't necessarily our happy place, although I think it can give us true happiness, which I'd like to define as deep joy. And I think deep joy is very different than happiness. Uh, Two friends of mine, Tony and Francis Papalardo, were recently on another friend's podcast, Danica Patrick's podcast, called Pretty Intense. If you know Danica, you know it's an aptly named podcast. And they were talking about the challenge they run into helping people who are frustrated with simple happiness, missing fulfillment, and maybe something bigger. True joy. I mean, how do you get from simple happiness, missing fulfillment, like, okay, I'm doing it, I'm chasing, I'm getting it, how come I'm not happy? And finding that bigger thing, that thing that find, sometimes you find when you're not happy, which is the thing you're probably searching for anyways, deep, sustained joy. You know, Rob Bell has his own podcast. It's called The Robcast. And his last podcast of 2019 was with this amazing kind of monk named Alexander Shia. It was all about how to get real joy. It was about embracing the pain, suffering, loss, success, happiness, and failure in a unified whole, like looking at all of those things and saying, Hey, this whole thing is what makes me who I am. You know, don't, don't carve out and edit out the things that you're not proud of, you don't like, or that hurt a little bit. Take it all as a unified whole. It was all about being honest about who we are and claiming all of it. That thing, that embrace about where we've come from, where we're headed, that is ultimately what offers, offers us really the true joy of life. So one of the things that Rob said on the Kick Aspirational podcast was that if you avoid the negative, if you refuse to be brutally honest about who you are, where you've come from and, and where you're headed, you will never, ever, ever be free. You'll never find true, deeply meaningful and ultimately fulfilling joy. A big part of my story is how my wife Sarah and I started an Amway business when we were in our early to mid-20s, struggled with it, struggled with it. I mean, really struggled. 
while we were raising kids in the Napa Valley. We we're trying to figure out other businesses, careers you know, that led us to the Seattle area, down to Laguna Beach, turning around a nutrition business, ultimately launching excess energy drinks, which, you know, has been pretty successful. Hasn't always been easy, but it's been very successful overall, which later came, became a global brand of functional drinks, snacks, and sports nutrition products. Grew to, you know, I think it's close to a half billion dollars now in annual sales across 60 countries. The best part of building the excess business at Amway were the people we got to work with over the years and how personal those relationships are. Direct selling, which is all about helping people who who start a business with virtually no investment and ought to have really have the ability to return product they don't use. So, you know, it's direct selling. It's, it's all about helping people start something. It's about helping them start something with no risk. You can return the products. You don't have to spend much money to get started. It, compared to any other business you're ever going to start, it's kind of ridiculous. So it's relatively risk-free compared to other businesses. That kind of business is all about helping people invest their sweat, their effort into an opportunity where they immediately develop customers, earn income, and, and honestly should not have any overhead. This gets abused from time to time. I'm not saying it's always perfect, but that's the fundamental idea. Direct selling businesses are all about learning to do and love the work. And from my perspective, it's all about doing the work together, learning to have fun doing it, fundamentally understanding that meeting people where they're at, listening to their stories, hearing about their pain, their angst, their fears, their dreams, and then doing something with them to deliberately move forward is probably... And this is my humble opinion. It's probably why people are here. It's it's why we're here at our core. I like to say it this way. People are the only animals that can deliberately invest in other people, that can add value to another without looking for something in return. Sure, there's symbiotic relationships in nature. And there are times when, when animals will react to another animal in danger to assist them or maybe help it. And there's some great Instagram videos about that. But that that's kind of reactive. It's the lizard brain that's working. It's not it's not deeply intentional. There's no animal building a strategy for how to love and help other people. I'm not a zoologist, but I don't see other animals intentionally and strategic investing in the fulfillment, the ultimate joy of another. I think only people do that. See, creation of wealth, and by wealth I don't mean money, gold, or large tracts of land, but true wealth, true joy, the creation of that comes from building lives together, communities and movements where we can express the values that give our lives meaning and expand them. Another of my favorite podcasts right now is one called Philosophize This by Stephen West. They're short, like 20, 30-minute podcasts that are really really dense. They're insanely dense and, and super punchy. I mean, I probably listened to them like four or five times just to try and to really understand them. One of his more recent episodes is on Hannah Arendt, uh, who is this uh, German philosopher on the banality of evil, which is, it's, I discussed it in season two, episode 30. But you know, Hannah Arendt is a, is a philosopher who lived through World War II and dug into the question of why do people in free societies allow totalitarians to take over and run their lives? Like, why did Germans allow Hitler to do what he did? Most Germans did not vote for Hitler, right? One of Hannah Arendt's big insights was that the worst evil isn't necessarily intentional. In a modern world where we tend to focus on specialization, work streams, silos, and areas of expertise, it's not surprising that people often feel isolated, alone, and more like a cog in a machine than a part of an integrated whole. She calls that person, whether it's male or female, economic man, basically a person whose existence is defined by work that seems meaningless and whose life 
whose life, this person's life becomes a monotony of biological existence, just fulfilling bodily functions at home and then going to work to do their thing. And, and that segmented work being run by a political system where we don't seem to have a voice that keeps us from expressing our values in a shared society ultimately isolates people and makes them feel alone. That, I believe, is why there are so many people in the modern world today who are more around other people than ever before, more in community, more in big cities and bigger cities than we've ever had, but feel like they, they have no connection. The worst example of this is Adolf Eichmann. He was one of the worst Nazis. He's the person who architected and decided the fate of millions of people, mostly Jews, who were put on rail cars to work and, and into death camps. And, and his, you know, when he was at uh, Nuremberg on trial after the war, he said, you know, his, his, his reaction was, you know, why, when people said, why'd you do this? He said, well, I was just doing my job, just doing his job. When Eichmann was on trial and everyone was expecting to finally see this monster, he left a disappointing image. He wasn't the brilliant face of evil many people were expecting from the Nazis. He was simply a man who was scared to death to be left by himself, to reflect on his own life, to create values that defined who he was, and then go out into the world and make hard choices based on living a life deliberately. He let somebody else create the values for his life. He let someone else tell him how to live. And in his case, it turned out awfully, not only for him, but more importantly for the millions of people whose, whose fates he decided in death camps across Eastern Europe and, 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 uh, and you know, the work camps in Germany. One of the greatest monsters in modern history murdered millions of people simply because he was among the worst joiners. He was one of the worst joiners on earth. He was the worst follower. He was the least capable human to look deeply at his, himself and his own soul. And so he decided to climb the ladder that had a chance to take him somewhere worth climbing. He, he decided to take a, a ladder of least resort. He took the ladder that he thought was going to give him what he wanted, which was not having a problem reacting to a society, asking him to do something he knew in his heart was probably, well, I hope he knew in his heart, we all should know in our heart was wrong. Reflection taking inventory, writing down what you want versus what you don't, recognizing your emotions, your fears, your anger, frustration, joy, love, surprise, etc. Why are you feeling those things? What do you like about that? What bothers you about it? We can't stop ourselves from reacting, but we can become more aware of those feelings. We can manage them better. We can redirect them to help us progress. We can move forward with intention in life. At the end of last year, it became fairly clear to me that although I was, I was appreciated in many ways and loved the people that I worked with at Amway and Excess, I mean, I can't tell you how grateful I was for it. Particularly after we had sold our business in 2015, new leadership came into Amway last year. There, there simply, you know, it became clear to me there just wasn't much of a place for me to strategically support that enterprise anymore. There was just a lot of changes, and um, I felt like we had kind of done the work we were supposed to do there. I really wasn't sure what I was supposed to do next, but I was kind of open to the universe. I wasn't gripping the wheel too tightly, let's say. No one asked me to leave. No one said I wasn't helpful. No one fired me. But there also wasn't a clear role for me to provide impact and leadership anymore. And so I said, I think I said this on the podcast with Rob Bell, look, I'm just not a good placeholder. 
<laughs> Rob said, Dave's not going to be employee of the month. You know, I'm, I'm really not much of a joiner or a follower. It doesn't make me a great person. Sometimes it makes me a rebel and sometimes a rebel without a cause. But um, obviously, you know, look, I, I, I do love supporting fellow leaders, but I kind of need to know why. I don't just like because I said so as an answer. And if there isn't an opportunity for me to help disrupt and lead change at this stage in my life, I just know I'm in the wrong place. So one thing, you know, that's bothered me in some parts of the Amway culture is there that there can, um, there's a little bit of insecurity sometime around people leaving to do other things. You know, we talked about graduation without divorce, meaning, hey, just because someone leaves here doesn't mean they're bad people just means their journey is taking them on a different track. And it doesn't mean, by the way, that anyone needs to follow me. It's just, this is where I need to go right now. And it doesn't make what, what anyone else is doing better or worse. I think, you know, sometimes we have to figure out what we need to do and not just be a joiner on somebody else's bandwagon. When I was at Computer Associates, you know, earlier in my career, it was the world's second largest software company then. This was in the late 1990s. And via an acquisition, I ended up at CA doing a, a lot of uh, acquisitions. I mean, work, well, I was I was there through an acquisition. The company was doing a ton of acquisitions. It was how they were fueling and, and driving their growth. And our area VP was talking to our team. You know, we were in this in the services side of the business, and he said something incredibly memorable. He said, "Some of you have been here a long time, and will finish your finish your careers at, at Computer Associates. Some of you recently joined via acquisition and may go on to other things. I'm happy you're here now." And I want you to know that I'll be applauding you wherever you go. Your work is about creating wealth, not wages. I want you to be successful in life wherever that takes you. Bosses don't always care about true personal development. But when you find ones that do, who encourage us to embrace and apply values to our work, to reflect, think, and embrace becoming better people, to invest in others without always looking for a return, that, that becomes work that has the potential to bring true joy. So last year I had a couple friends, Greg Clark, who I'd worked with at Amway and then completely unrelated to to Greg and Amway, Byron Roth from Roth Capital, where I'm an investor with and on the board at RX3 Ventures. They both separately told me I needed to meet, meet, that I needed to meet Brent Willis at New Age Beverages, which is a fast growth public company. I think it's the fastest growing uh, public company in beverages in the world. Um, I'm not typically looking for opportunities with public companies. My wife, Sarah, actually has a small fund. She invests with our good friend and equities expert, Glenn Rogers. Glenn's been on the podcast. We have a nest egg that's managed professionally to manage long-term risk by my good friends, Mark and Sarah Lynn Sherwood at Morgan Stanley and Grand Rapids. I've been a COO and on the board of public companies before. And frankly, I just wasn't really looking for that sort of work and scrutiny again. You know, when you're at a public company, you just have a lot of people watching what you're doing and asking a lot of questions and you have to make sure that you dot your I's and cross your T's. I'm happy to do that, but it's, you know, it doesn't give you the free play sometimes you're looking for as an entrepreneur. But then again, sometimes life surprises you. (laughs) So Brent, share with me what new age beverage is. It's NBEV on NASDAQ, NBEV, what New Age was doing and where it was headed. You know, the company grew by over 400% last year. It's, I think the company overall is up something like 10,000% over the past three years. That's literally how much it's up. It's just been growing like crazy, doing acquisitions and growing and, and uh, kind of interesting. And it's quickly shifting. And, um, you know, it has a, a strategy that's 
historically been acquisitive and now it's more about profitability and organic growth. And we have some work to do and we're making progress. But what struck me and engaged my curiosity was that they had acquired a 20-year-old company called Marinda, who basically invented the idea of superfruit concentrate. Uh, they have a product called Tahitian noni juice, and they did that to deliver some of the most powerful, naturally occurring antioxidants roughly 20 years ago. There used to be arguments about whether or not vitamins worked and whether or not we all got enough nutrition we needed from our diets. As we get wiser and, and, and older about how we consume calories, one of the things that seems to connect with people is trying to live healthy. And that our, you know, as we try and do that, the idea that our bodies absorb nutrition better generally with the whole plant. The idea of a phytonutrient or a full spectrum of the fruit and vegetable, not just one compound, is becoming much more popular as scientific research has shown more benefits from how our bodies absorb the key components of a fruit or vegetable when we have it all taken together. So when I had met Brandon, he shared the story of the New Age company and the variety of companies, brands, and products that were being acquired across a variety of distribution channels to empower people to both find better options when and where it made sense to buy them, but more importantly, via Marinda's direct selling model, allowing people to benefit from sharing and helping others buy them. I was interested. The idea had traction. In a lot of ways, it had the vision of what I'd wanted to do and wasn't really able to, in some cases, uh, with excess at Amway. And um, so it was, it was interesting, this idea of growing exponentially and doing a lot of potentially good things for people on the planet all in one place. It's like a triple bottom line. Um, the other th- piece that was extremely intriguing to me was something that we aren't really promoting, but that big thinkers and top leaders can unlock. It's this whole other level in the entire idea of direct selling, the idea of true ownership, of real equity. You know, when people talk about being business owners or owning their own business, um, a big part of that means that someone can't take it away from you or fire you. Someone can't cancel your business. Um, and I, I really think that um, owning a piece or a share of an enterprise can be deeply meaningful when the organization operates from values that connect personally with your own, especially when you're investing your time, your sweat, your hard work, and your creativity into an organization. I believe that part of how we find purpose and fulfillment and ultimately joy is when there is a is complete unity and direct connection between our work and our reward, when our values and the things we're doing every day uh, build on top of each other. Of course, it's not just about winning or achieving a, a victory. Those are waypoints. Those are summits and stops along the journey. What I think most people discover who found true joy is that the painful failures probably define them or at least have taught them more than their victories. Both matter. They, you got to win too. And the combination, the deep and howling painfulness, is probably what gives kind of unbridled ecstasy the most definition. Owning equity in a business where you work isn't about day trading a stock. You know, it's not about how, how are we doing today. It's about, it's about a long-term view. It's not focusing on efficiencies to maximize shareholder value minute by minute, which is part of what I hate about public companies, or speculating about what the price of a share could be five years from now. I mean, look, let's just make it go up and to the right. <laughs> let's make it worth more. Sure, there's plenty of people who do that. And, and you know, God bless them. Maybe that's, that gives their life meaning. There are day traders who do it poorly and shouldn't, and some investors who do it very well and think strategically. The reason I was compelled... Um, 
by sharing publicly traded equity with our core distributors. I mean, look, the reason I was compelled was I wanted to share equity with our core distributors. And people who are committed to sustainable exponential growth for the long haul. Because I wanted to attract people who had the talent but have been burned by owners and companies other places. That to me was everything. It was like, wow, we could actually create something here where people have been burned, who've had things taken away, who haven't been treated like an owner, even though they've been screaming business owner, could actually have what they've always wanted. There's a great book by Brett Blake titled Private Equity Investing in Direct Selling. (laughs) It's a terrible title and it sounds horribly boring, but I couldn't put it down and strongly recommend reading it. One of the best things Brett highlights is that many direct selling businesses have remarkable early growth curves and huge dips afterwards. You know, there's a lot of companies that just take off and rocket and then they crash. And Brett, by the way, has worked at many of them and been a CEO or at that, you know, in the, in the executive suite at many of them and done very well. So he's, 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 he did a deep study. He has lots of great examples. And this is, this is a very, very good book worth reading for anyone in direct selling or anyone interested in it. One of the things that Brent highlights is that many direct selling businesses go through this this um, you know launch and dip, but they also tend to spin off tremendous cash flow that can be tra- can be retained and used wisely to sustain these businesses through those inevitable restructuring periods. Often, though, you see founders and owners who just take the money and and spend it spend it unwisely. There's a lot of greed involved, and so those businesses tend to go away. Um, a big part of my attraction with New Age was looking at how we could create value for shareholders, how we could make some of those shares available to people who invested themselves in our brand. And hopefully we'll be able to surprise everyone with dramatic amounts of value down the road. I like to think of providing stock to our independent product consultants, our IPCs, the same way that the Green Bay Packers have shared the ownership of that professional sports franchise with their fans. When Green Bay fans bought stock in the Packers, it wasn't to day trade or speculate on the value. It was to own a part of the thing that they put their hopes, dreams, and sweat into. They told their friends about the Packers, argued about the team, painted their faces, wore the colors, cried when the team lost, and celebrated when they won. They bought shares to frame and hang on the wall, to hold and keep, to show where their heart was, that where their heart was, their wallet was also. It wasn't expensive. It wasn't a big investment. It was about having a stake in the game. New Age is about more than direct selling. We segment our business as a direct selling business. Uh, We also do direct-to-consumer. And we also have traditional retail. We even have a, what we call a DSD distributor, a company that in Colorado that distributes traditional retail beverages. Um, how people buy things is changing fast. Over the past few years, I've been doing more and more work in private equity. Glenn Rogers and I did a podcast about investing last summer when we were in uh, Sardinia. He and I are investors in a couple different funds. We do some of our own direct investing and have bought different funds into deals we, we, we find. Uh, we're both on the board of RX3 Ventures, the fund that Aaron Rodgers, Byron Roth, and Nate Robbie assembled. And we love doing that work. It's just fun to find companies that are emerging and need support that we can help and we can watch them grow. It's, it's, it's really, really profoundly um, fulfilling for me. And why I'm getting into this is that we've looked at emerging brands and businesses that are earning strong profits and growing fast. We like to see these companies have distribution in traditional retail we also kind of feel that traditional retail is, is largely broken. You know, going to the stores is, is being disrupted by shopping online, 
you know, and um, referring cool brands to your friends, right? Going to pop-up stores, home trunk shows, and all sorts of new ways for brands and products to be available to consumers when they want them and where they want to buy them. When we were building the excess brand at Amway, one of the areas we led was using social media first and using e-commerce even to connect with consumers in ways that supported and protected our business owners who represented our brands, but really helped them soften the beaches. Probably the biggest complaint we've had over the years is that our products kept ending up on retail store shelves, you know, the excess products, when direct selling was typically limited to, you know, selling person to person. Uh, that was breaking the rules back then. So that business owners, you know, they wanted to have their opportunity protected. They didn't want cons- customers to be able to find the products they had rights to, kind of exclusive access to on other store shelves. And, you know, people would say, hey, look, if excess was on the shelves at Walmart, why buy it from an independent business owner? And I guess the funny thing that surprised me and maybe many traditional concepts about how people buy and how brands are built is that the more points of presence a brand and product have, the more each channel actually sells. It's just a myth that if it's in more points of presence, it'll hurt one of the other points of presence. Actually, the more points of presence you have, the more each of those other points of presence sells. This is the beauty of points of presence, of awareness, of being top of mind, of having it when people want it, where they want it. You know, Ralph Lauren is probably one of the first geniuses to showcase that on a grand scale. He bought the Rhinelander mansion on 72nd Avenue in New York, literally blocks away from Bloomingdale's, where his polo brand was pioneered. You know, he had a flagship store inside inside uh inside bloomingdale's he had had for over a decade it was where his it was like ground zero the garden of eden for his brand and literally he goes and buys this mansion a couple blocks away and builds this massive flagship store um and everyone was like ralph you're gonna kill your sales at bloomingdale's why would you do that to bloomingdale's bloomingdale's is the core of your business bloomingdale's built your business why would you screw Bloomingdale's like this? And Ralph Lauren said, I'm not going to screw Bloomingdale's. This will double my sales at Bloomingdale's. And it did. My sister and brother-in-law, another example, my sister and brother-in-law on a large outdoor retailer in Grand Haven, uh, Grand Haven, Michigan, is called Earth's Edge. They're one of the largest North Face and Patagonia re- retailers in the state. They only carry great brands who manage their channels and they segment those channels really well. So they sell online and, and in their store. The brands also carry, um, the, the brands that they carry also sell online, like Patagonia. You can buy off Patagonia.com, North Face. You can buy at NorthFace.com. Um, and, uh, um, you know, all of that customer access and brand management actually makes it easy for them, easier for them to sell more of it. Their business has been growing and growing and growing year on year as a retailer, as a retailer that shouldn't be growing. I think the difference is they have great brands and people are looking for it. People want to try it on. They want to buy it when and where they are, not just in a limited, hard-to-find channel. And so their business has been growing with these known brands that have lots of access points and lots of presence because those are the brands people actually want. My brother-in-law, Carl, said that when he has customers come in and check out, like, for example, a Thule or Yakima Rack for their car, you know, where they're going to put their bike or kayak on, uh, they want to see how it's going to work and how it might look on their car. And when he tries to help them buy it, they'll say, oh, I just wanted to see it here. I'm going to go buy it online and find the best price. And then he says to them, go ahead right now. Open up your phone. Show me the best price and I'll match it. He said to me, I only work with brands that manage their products and keep a consistent price that don't sell discounters. And that's why 
He's like, I've never had somebody find a cheaper price online. It's, it's, you know, you work with brands that manage themselves. You work with brands that know how to segment. You just don't have that problem. It's a myth. There is no exclusivity that helps somebody do better. I was talking with Ryan Hitzel, the founder of Rourke. Uh, I'm an investor in his brand. He was on the podcast a year ago too. Rourke's an outdoor lifestyle venture brand. They sell apparel. It tells deep brand stories. They offer artifacts of adventure, clothing and tools that help people on a remarkable journey or at least aspire to be. And Rourke makes most of their revenue in wholesale, selling to retailers, but their fastest growing channels are direct to consumer via social media and their website, their e-commerce. They also have strong growth via catalog, which is also direct to consumers, direct from them through a catalog to their consumer, which is coming back, but in new ways. I mean, their catalog is more like a brand book. It's unbelievable. We're subscribing to um, go to Rourke.com, R-O-A-R-K.com and pick up a copy of their, of their, uh, of their catalog. It's, it's one of the most fun things to read you'll find. And they've been expanding flagship stores to create a presence in critical hip districts like Fairfax and LA, the Berkeley waterfront and other areas. They want to target and connect with their market, with their brand story. More presence, managed well and segmented, creates more raving customers and more value, period. We built a large and successful brand at Amway. But one area I wanted to do more was expanding into more channels while enhancing the business for our core business owners. There was just too much legacy resistance to those new ideas in a company that's 60 years old. Love Amway. It's a great business. I hope it continues to be, and I wish everyone well there. They have you People there have every right to make the decisions the owners choose, and I celebrate that with them. There's also a point, though, for a person like me, where I feel like my ability to add value is coming to an end, and the, and the vision that I've wanted to test and explore is going to need to come to life somewhere else. That decision happened faster than I anticipated it would in late December and early January this year. I was literally on a ski trip with my family in uh, Whistler. I had been really wrestling with a lot of these ideas when I finally got clarity. And then we made the decision in, in early January. New age will disrupt how wealth and beauty is distributed, how companies will share value with their biggest value creators. And we are in our infancy, and it's a very delicate time, and we are working hard. And, uh, you know, I'm incredibly hopeful that not only we'll survive, but that we will explode and thrive. And, uh, you know, we've hit some speed bumps. Uh, last year, some of our brand stories about CBD, for example, got markets focused on you know, a single digit percentage of our business, less than 1% of our business is CBD sales. But then all of a sudden, you know, markets linked us to, um, you know, CBD and marijuana stocks. And when those stocks popped up and then crashed, we rode with them despite it really not being our core business. We also had the same problem that anyone else does in China last year. The government put a hundred day moratorium on direct selling because of a few bad actors. We weren't one of them. And we're doing very well through it, relative to other companies. But we all had to struggle through that. We all had to work through that problem. We're coming out of that now. And, of course, now we're into the coronavirus there. And we're still doing better than most. But, uh, you know, it's going to be a headwind for everybody in that market. And I'm, opt- I'm, I'm very op- optimistic about some of the things we've planned to leverage during those down cycles into bigger opportunities. I like to say that in chaos is opportunity. And even though it's harder and you're fighting into a headwind, you're not always sure what the outcome is going to be. 
if you stay focused and build harder in those times, you have bigger opportunities and can come out much stronger than your competition. More important than an ingredient or region is where we're headed strategically. I believe we're building one of the most unique ways to live healthy when people want to, where they want to, with more formats and options to integrate things like noni juice and CBD and other key plants, fruits, and vegetables into their lives. It's funny, I'd, I'd heard of Tahitian noni and other super fruit concentrates that tried to follow their product development business model, but didn't really understand that story. Didn't understand where it had come from or why it mattered. I had no idea that noni was the strongest antioxidant among any fruit in the world, almost 10 times more powerful than pomegranate, as an example. I had no idea with all this immunity discussion now how much noni boosts immunity. If you look at the, the clinical trials that we've done that have been published and reviewed, peer-reviewed, you know, in 30-year-olds, in we, we showed that uh, you could literally boost immunity particularly the NK cells that are like bullets in a gun that shoot viruses, 30%. It's amazing. Drinking 165 milliliters twice a day. It's amazing. I didn't understand how potentially remarkable Noni was in terms of complementary benefits for things like CBD. I interviewed Brett West, one of our R&D experts, and we dug into how CBD supports our what we call the endocannabinoid system, a human system like our respiratory system or you know, uh, nervous system, other systems. Um, but this system, the endocannabinoid system, which helps modulate a lot of our other bodily systems, wasn't discovered until the 1990s. And so a lot of people don't even know it exists. Um, you know, we discussed how Noni complements CBD in that system via our different CBD, you know, cell receptors, CBD1 and CBD2. CBD kind of attaches more to the CBD1 receptor, helps modulate the, you know, the, the anxiety, stress, sleep, things like that. Noni attaches more to CBD2, which is more of your gut-related uh, um, endocannabinoid elements. So it's things like inflammation and... and um, uh, um, immunity and things like that. Really interesting how these two work together and really modulate the entire rest of our body. Um, and, and so that's why also, by the way, why it's been so hard to study CBD because it, 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 it's so integrated to so many different systems that it's hard to identify one specific thing that it does, which is what you have to do to make a claim. And my goal, you know, here isn't, uh, isn't to sell anyone on a product or ingredient. But it's just always interesting to me to learn about new breakthroughs in healthy living and, and simple ways many of us can improve our lives through better practices, simpler ingredients, and whole plants and fruit, fruits. I mean, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's finding relief from the earth. It's finding solutions from the earth. So while this journey I've been on has helped transform me and my family, one of the most remarkable and addictive parts has been supporting others on their journeys. When you start to realize that we each can change ourselves, that we don't have to stay in the place we are, and that we have opportunity as fellow pilgrims to help each other discover the magic, the mystery, and magnificent destinations available out there, it's really hard to hide that story. You want to let it shine. So regardless of the reasons you've been following this podcast, I hope you stick around. My journey has included a variety of companies, products, and people that I consider friends over the years. I've tried really hard not to burn bridges, and, and I think I've done a pretty decent job of that. This new chapter isn't a change in philosophy. It's just setting. It's just a change in setting with some new characters. 
And I hope people respect the change, stick around, continue to engage this podcast, and embrace the concept of graduation without divorce. My personal progression required me to move in a new direction with new risks, rewards, and safeguards. I want to emphasize how entirely grateful I am for every experience I've had in my past. I am embracing a unified whole, every single one, and the people who've been involved. I hope that you share that unified and inclusive view of your own life, and it brings you the same sort of deep joy that mine brings me. Let's agree to include more people on our paths, to support more fellow pilgrims, and to help each other become more kick-aspirational. This has been the Kick Aspirational Podcast. It's not a spectator sport. Please reach out to me on social media or on Instagram. You know, my Instagram is at David, D-A-V-E-E-D, 58. You can hit me there via DM. Let me know your questions, your concerns, and how we can connect. And please, whatever you do this week, be Kick Aspirational.